it's appropriate, I think, to look to the Word about what the Word says about mothers. And, and, and there's a lot of references to mothers in the Bible. Um, Sarah talked about one of the most significant ones in, in her prayer. But there is a, in Psalm 31, there are a few lines that really focus in on how I think our feelings should be towards those who have given the sacrifice to be mothers. In verse 25 and on, it says, Strength and honor are her clothing, and she shall rejoice in time to come. She openeth her mouth and with wisdom, and in her tongue is the law of kindness. Thank God for that when we're children, right? She looketh well to the ways of her household, and eateth not the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praiseth her. Praise God. Okay, before we continue then, we're going to do something that we haven't done before, but it, they used to do it in my church, and I thought it was kind of cool. And so I'm going to ask all the mothers to stand up again, please. All right? All right, now all the mothers that are older than 30, I want you to sit down. Aha! Uh -huh. All right. Any, any mothers that are younger than 35? 37. Oh, here's one right back here. Okay, come on up. Now, you, you can stay there. You can stay there. That's all right. What, I'm, what we're doing is we want to recognize the, her with a corsage, and so this is for you, and I'm going to ask your husband to put that on for you. That would be very appropriate. Okay. Now, we're going to do the same thing, and I thought it was a slam dunk, but, but um, one of the mothers that I thought was going to be here is not here, so it's not a slam dunk, so I don't know. So I'm going to ask all the mothers that are older than 50 to stand up. All right, we have a contest. Old, older, than, older than 55, remain standing. Older than 60, remain standing. Older than 65, remain standing. Older than 70, remain standing. Older than 71, remain standing. 73, older than 73, 75? Older than 78? Older than 80? All right. Here you go, Frank. I'm going to ask you to put that on Alma. Thank you very much. Yeah. Now, my wife told me I was taking my life in my hands by doing that. But we're a family, and so we can celebrate that kind of honor. Let's pray for our mothers right now. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you made man and woman the way that you did and that you caused the, the, um, the family to come into being to represent what we are to be, your church to your son, Jesus. We thank you for the mom part, Lord, because moms teach us so much about love, understanding, grace, and sacrifice. And that's all part of the image that we have of you. 
So thank you for moms. I pray that you would bless each one of these mothers here and those in the families that we represent that couldn't be here and that you would shower with them with your love and honor today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Sarah, it's all yours. Good morning. Welcome to Living Hope. We're so happy you're here. Um, if we are a church that believes in the power of prayer and a God who answers them, and he, he, he does time and time again. If there's anything on your heart, there should be a piece of paper in the seat back in front of you. Feel free to fill that out, um, and we will be passing around the prayer pouches. Thank you, John. Um, all right. Also, we have a weekly email. If you're not receiving that currently, go ahead and put your email address on that piece of paper, and we'll make sure it gets to the right people so you, you can be informed. Um, there will be no youth group today, so everyone can celebrate Mother's Day. Do something special for your moms. Um, we have corporate prayer here at the church building Monday mornings at 9 a.m. It's open to anyone who can join. Please, um, please feel free to join. If you're unable to be here physically, Feel free to pray at 9 a.m. with the rest of the church. Thank you. Um, we are collecting non-perishable items for the Haymarket Food Pantry. Uh, their shelves are quite empty this time of year, um, and so if there's anything that you can bring, there's a big black box in the back. Go ahead and drop that off there. Um, any other announcements? Yes. Oh, yes. Children, you may be excused. Kindergarten through third. Okay. And there's also, there's the compassion table. It's a wonderful ministry to uh, help families around the world. Feel free to pick up a pamphlet or, or choose a child to adopt. Anything else? All right. The scripture this morning is from Luke 20, 19 through 25. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Reading God's word. Well, good morning again. It's a, a real blessing and a privilege to be able to share with you this morning. Um, I was a little nervous uh, about doing something this week, and my nerves grew and grew. Um, and then all of a sudden I realized I didn't know if I was more nervous about doing this or hosting six mothers at my house this afternoon for Mother's Day. And then I realized which one it was, and so this is a slam dunk. No problem. <laughs> So as Brian has told us in earlier messages, we're centering each Sunday's message uh, while uh, Tim is away on his sabbatical 
on the statement that serves as one of our guiding principles. And I need to do this. There we go. Knowing Jesus changes everything. And that's what we're focusing on. And this morning we're going to think a little bit about how knowing Jesus changes how we relate to others. Now when Rachel and I first moved to Virginia, I was a Christian. I had accepted Christ at a very young age, and it was real. And I had been to church almost every time the doors were open in New Orleans, and and it was very nourishing. I had a good time there and learned and was fed uh, by the Word of God. However, after I moved away and went off to college and then in the first parts of, of my life, I explored what the world had to offer and focused a lot less on kingdom living. After a while, after we moved to Virginia, Rachel became acquainted with a group of ladies uh, who invited her to a Bible study where she eventually invited the Holy Spirit into her life. Now, Rachel had always been a wonderful wife, and seemingly nothing had changed in how she approached the challenges of everyday life as a young mother. But I knew I could see that something had changed. There was a peace and a purpose there that had not been there before. And it was so inviting, so alluring, that I had to ask her what had happened. And her answer changed my life. It changed the way I did everything with relation to others. Now, we all struggle with trying to figure out who we are. And there's no end to the answers that we get. This morning, what we're going to do is look at the answers to that question from three perspectives. Who does the world say you are? Who does the devil say you are? And who does God say you are? So who does the world say you are? Well, it all depends on who you ask. And the answers are really conditional. That is, they're usually based on what the person answering you wants to get from you. There was a commercial a while back, representative of what the world would have us believe about ourselves, which centered on the statement that a particular store was going to provide to me the quality I want and the savings I deserve. What I couldn't figure out is why I deserved savings. <laughs> I mean, it just, it still bothers me. It was on, it was on, there was another commercial just, just the other day where the same statement was made that I deserve these savings. Um, are there others that don't deserve the savings? Is it just me? Or just us lucky ones here? They, ins- they assigned an importance to me and to everyone else listening in our own eyes to try to attract us to, to their product. Now, the world would have us believe, and these are some representative things that I just found on the web, the world would have us believe that we are the center of our universe and that our goal should be to satisfy our passions, our wants, and our desires. And that's really all that matters. And there's usually someone there that's willing to help, or something, and it's always for a price. We learn that we are here to use and to be used by others. Without a foundation of truth, everything becomes conditional. Conditional relative to how it relates to our own desires. 
Paul warns us in Colossians 2, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. We're living in, and our children are growing up in a world that's very uncertain. Their questions and our questions are often met with answers that are confusing and vague. Is there a God? Well, we don't know for sure, or there's many, so just choose whichever one you like. Or, yes, but we all have different names for him. Where did everything come from? Well, we know for sure science has convicted us of the fact that the Big Bang Theory triggered everything. Well, what come from, where, where did that come from? Uh, well, we don't know for sure. How do I say what's right? How do I know what's right and what's wrong? There's no absolute morality. Just do what feels good to you, what seems right. We as human beings are evolving so perfectly that we can redefine what's right and what's wrong based on our increase, ever-increasing knowledge and what serves our own desires, everyone's desires. Well, what happens when I die? Uh, we don't know for sure. Maybe it's the end. Uh, or you'll be okay because a loving God would never be able to not accept you into his heaven. And those are, the, those are the things we hear. This is the wisdom of our world. And make no mistake, we hear it every day. Educated, trained, effective folks can make these arguments sound rock-solid convincing. I heard a guy on the radio the other day who was a um, humanist talking about how um, uh, he had come to these realizations that this was the truth and that belief in a God was uh, such a childish concept that no one with half a brain would, would accept it. And it just broke my heart to hear that. And, to, and he sounded very wise. But this is exactly what Paul was talking about in that verse out of Colossians. Well, who does the devil say you are? Well, he begins the same way he began with Adam and Eve, by telling us that we just like him, deserve to be on an equal footing with God, that we deserve whatever our hearts desire. The story's in Genesis. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made, and he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said that you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, well, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight, delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave it also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. 
Does the gist of this story sound similar to what we talked about in relation to what the world is telling us about ourselves? You see how it links up with the message from our fallen world? That we should take what we deserve? The reason it's similar is because it's the same. It's the beginning point of the fall. It's exactly what Satan convinced himself at the point that he walked away from God. What he doesn't want us to know at this point, and what we usually hide away from ourselves, is that the fact is the fact that when the folly of this course of action plays out and consequences begin to accrue, we begin to experience the fruit of sin. And the Bible tells us the fruit of sin is death. It's just Satan doesn't tell us that he and God have very different definitions for the word to die. And that's what he did in the garden. And Satan then does what many clever politicians do, and that is he does a 180. He tells us then that we are of no value at all, that God is finished with us, that there's no hope and that we deserve to die. And because of the wisdom that we have taken for ourselves without the truth that comes from God, many believe these lies. The devil then offers us the only worldly escape, avenues by which we try to numb the pain through all sorts of endeavors that keep us in chains and become the beginning point of death. So what's the truth? Well, from this perspective, we first need to think a little bit about who Jesus is. He often refers to himself as the Son of God, Son of Man, and as many times refers to himself as the Son of God. In Matthew 18, speaking of himself, he says that the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. And in Matthew 16, Jesus affirms the correctness of Peter's declaration that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So what does this mean? In the culture of those times, the term Son of was used to convey that the person being described possessed the attributes of that to which he was being linked by the phrase. In the fullest sense, if I were declared to be a son of something, then I was being said to project in my image all the attributes that one could ascribe to that which would, with which I was being linked. So to be the son of Virginia or a son of liberty would mean that people see in those people that they're describing the attributes of what they perceive as a good Virginian or a believer in the founding principles of our democracy. For Jesus to be the Son of God means that he possessed all the attributes of God that are capable of being carried in human form. And to be the Son of Man meant that he possessed all the attributes of being human. Without that being true, then the work he came to do would not have been possible, for it was his totally human nature that allowed him to represent us at judgment, and it was his totally divine nature that allowed him to overcome death and convey to us his righteousness. So when we're asked the question, who are you? We need only to do what Jesus asked the scribes and chief priests to do. We should look at ourselves and see whose image is imprinted on us. Genesis 1.27 tells us, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Satan will do his best with the help of the world to blur that image with something else. 
to try to hide from us the image that is there. But praise God, He can never obliterate it. We're never hopeless. Nathan, can you come up here for a second? I'm going to step down here because it, then, the, then the illustration becomes even clearer. <laughs> for those of you who don't know, Nathan is my son. But you would never, if you saw him walking down the street and me on the other side, you'd never link that up. <laughs> the image thing is, is um, different from what we perceive to be our eyes. However, as any Christian father would hope, by God's grace, I would like him to emulate those attributes those of a Christian uh, son, a Christian husband, a Christian father uh, that I would desire myself to possess. That's what I would like his image to be. In fact, even good non-Christian fathers have a like desire for their children. So does being made in God's image mean that we look physically like him? Well, <laughs> maybe, maybe not. We don't know. We won't know for sure until we get to heaven. But I know from what God's Word says that we were created to possess and to practice the attributes of God. Thank you, son. Yes. So if we're made in God's image and Jesus represents everything of God that can be carried in human form, then if we truly desire to be who we were created to be, we should want to be like Jesus. John 14, 6, and Jesus states there, I am the way the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. Now this is central to our quest. Psalm 119, the words, we find the words there, the sum of your word is truth and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. And in John 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. There are many declarations that God's very nature is truth, that His word is truth. And then we have the revelation of John about Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. What this means, all of this taken together, is that the life Jesus lived and the guidance He gave us are the pictures of truth, the way God wants us to live. Thus, we have the beginning of our answer of who we were created to be who we really are. We're the children of God. Not just in the sense of creations of God, but in the very real sense that we were, we are intended to commune with God. To be His image in every way that a human can. To be like Jesus. Does this mean that we're then to see ourselves as gods in the worldly definition? To take what we want? Absolutely not. It means that to live eternal life, we are to allow ourselves to be transformed into the image of Jesus, the image of God, the God who is truth and love, the kind of love that lays itself down willingly for others. So what does this mean in how we relate to all those around us? The world and the devil tell us over and over again that love is a zero-sum game. That what's important is what I get, how much love I get. And it may come at the expense of others, but who cares? Paul addresses this in Ephesians 5 and gives us models of how we're to behave in relation to our fellow Christians, 
to our spouses, to our children, and to those with whom we work. In verse 1, he frames all of these relationships in one truth. Therefore, be imitators, be images of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for you, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. And then in verse 18 through 21, he addresses our relationships to all our fellow believers. Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. In verse 22, he begins very specific instructions with regard to how we should act in those relationships which will occupy almost the majority of our time while we're here on earth. Verse 22 says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. And in verse 25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Now, in our times and these days of political correctness, and even before, these verses have been the center of a lot of controversy because that's because they were taken out of context, not the way they were intended to be taken. They're written as inseparable couples, they were meant to be taken together and not to be separated. They present, when taken together, they present the picture of a perfect marriage. What man could not desire to nurture, protect, lift up, support, and provide for a woman who willingly places herself completely in his care, in complete vulnerability? And what woman could not desire to do this for someone in whom she has complete confidence that his primary goal is to love, provide for her, protect her, and always put her first, even to the point of laying down his own life for her. With children, it's similar. In verse 6, it says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And in verse 4, I'm sorry, in chapter 6, verse 4, it says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Again, these verses form an inseparable couple, and they can't be taken independently. Children can trust and respect parents who lovingly, with the kind of love that Christ had, without malice, provide for them a solid foundation of principle on which to base their conduct, to provide them with the boundaries within which the truth expects us to operate throughout our whole lives. And finally, addressing our everyday work relationships, whether as an employer or an employee, we are to apply the same principles. Be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord. And masters, do the same things to them. 
all the things that he just told the people that are worker bees to do for their masters, he tells the master to do the same thing to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there's no partiality in him. So we're to respect those above us and to nurture those below us. And finally, Jesus himself summarized how we're to behave in everyone with every, in relationship to everyone around us. In Mark 12, 30 and 31, he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So take a look at yourself. Whose image do you find there? Then as Jesus says, render yourself to him, the God of truth and love. And as you allow the Holy Spirit to perfect the image that he finds there, you'll find that all your relationships will be put into a place where they can prosper. Now make no mistake, we live in a fallen world. There's competition out there, and these relationships are going to come under attack. But with this truth, if you can stand on this truth, then they will be rooted on a firm foundation, one that can withstand the fiercest of storms. Now, as we close in prayer, I'm going to ask the praise band to make their way to the stage while we're in a time of prayer. So I mean, well, the way we'll start is I'm going to invite you to pray with me. And what I'd like for you to do is to um, go into a silent prayer and think about whose image is there. And then I'll close, close us as a body. Will you pray with me? Father, as we explore our own hearts, I pray that in this time of quietness and solitude that you would make it clear to us whose image is there. Open our eyes, Lord, so that we can see the beauty of your creation. Lord, thank you for the gift of life. Thank you for creating us. Thank you for giving us the privilege to be your images here on the earth. Lord, I pray that you would make it clear to us every day in every step we take how, would you, how you would have us behave the way that your son did when he walked the earth. Now, Lord, on this special day, I pray that you would bless mothers, that you would bind us all together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.